you're being taken to wrestler's court. When those words left Stephanie McMahon's mouth on April 3, 2001, at a SmackDown taping in Oklahoma City, I was blindsided. Coming off what I considered my finest moment as a WWE writer, contributing to a hugely successful WrestleMania 17 and a historic Raw, I thought my newly promoted boss would be giving me something else, a bonus, a promotion, maybe even the clippers my hero Roddy Piper once used to shave Little Beaver's head for having the gall to be friends with Mr. T. Instead, her expression was one you'd reserve for breaking the news that a beloved pet had just been fatally electrocuted. This is not optional. Make sure you bring beer. Maybe some pizza. Immediately, a number of questions went through my head. What kind of pizza? What brand of beer? And perhaps most pressingly, what the hell is Wrestler's Court? As word spread throughout the locker room, I quickly learned that Wrestler's Court was a time-honored tradition going back several decades. It was a way for the wrestlers, commonly referred to as the boys, though it included the women wrestlers as well, to let off steam and police themselves when someone violated an unwritten backstage rule, a.k.a. the wrestler's code. Eat fried chicken in the locker room and leave behind crumbs over people's luggage? You're going to wrestler's court. Sit in first class and not give up your seat to a veteran who's flying coach? Wrestler's court. Give up your seat to a veteran who's flying coach but then complain about having to give up said seat to anyone who will listen? Most definitely, wrestler's court. It's a way of ribbing on the square, which means having fun with someone while also making a serious point in the process. But why make that point when there's a golden opportunity to get the entire locker room to fuck with them first? I had never been part of this rite of passage, mainly due to one key word, wrestler. For decades, court was conducted for the boys, by the boys. In the history of WWE, no writer had ever been taken to wrestler's court. Until now. Stephanie told me I was being accused of accepting gifts from the popular tag team of Edge and Christian in exchange for television airtime. Don't let anyone tell you different. Championship belts are not the most precious commodity in WWE. Television airtime is. The more exposure you get on TV, the more promos you get to cut, the more backstage scenes you're in, the more the audience gets a chance to see your character, the greater chance you have of getting over. To be over means the audience is reacting strongly to you, positively or negatively. And you're making money. Lots of it. But you can't get over if you're not on TV. And the idea of someone essentially bribing a writer for a promo here or a backstage bit there is actually a serious charge. Was it true? Not at all. The charges were completely baseless. And by completely, I mean mostly. If there's one tradition in wrestling that dates back even further than wrestlers' court, it's older veterans being upset that someone newer and younger is taking their spots. I had bonded with Edge and Christian almost immediately when I started with the company back in November 1999. We were all the same age, had similar senses of humor, and of course, tremendous physiques. Two out of three of those things are true, but I'm not saying which ones. Other than these guys putting their bodies on the line three or four times a week every week for the past ten years, and me putting my body on the line, never, we were very similar. 
I was told early on that much like how When Harry Met Sally postulated that men and women can't be friends, wrestlers and writers can't be friends either. Not because the sex gets in the way, even wrestlers have their standards, but because the relationship is not based on actual friendship, but rather, what can you do for my career? When I started, Edge and Christian were the classic great matches, no personality tag team guys. In reality, they had personalities, but they were never given the chance to show them. In fact, when Edge first came up, he was told his character was going to be a deaf mute and would express silent rage. Thankfully, the real-life Edge, Adam Copeland, expressed clear audible rage over that idea, and he and Jay Riso, a.k.a. Christian, were instead cast as brothers and part of The Brood. Cool, hip vampires who wore flowery pirate blouses and tights. The perfect ensemble for hand-to-hand combat. It wasn't who they were in real life, but at least they had characters. A kick-ass entrance, got to drink fake blood from a goblet, and had acquired the ability to occasionally speak. Adam and Jay weren't actually brothers, but they might as well have been, having known each other since grade school. Most of WWE management during this time were in their 50s and 60s, so when a fellow 20-something came aboard, it didn't take long for the bonding to begin. We brainstormed on ways to make their characters meld more with their actual personalities. Hence, they became shit-stirring smartasses. We had a blast coming up with different ways to antagonize the hometown crowds, the centerpiece being the five-second pose. I threw this concept out to them as a way for each of their promos to have a big finish, where, for the benefit of those with flash photography, flash photography still being a thing in 2000-2001, they would insult the audience in a creative way and then stand in the ring and allow the audience to bask in their greatness and take all the pictures they wanted for five seconds. Anything more would be gratuitous.